welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. You may have noticed it's been a few weeks since we've had a new episode here, and I do apologize for the long absence. This will not be the norm. Unfortunately, the first weekend of the month, I was sick and was not my usual self. I was not able to put together a decent episode, and uh, then, unfortunately, the week after that, uh, both of my grandmothers had uh, medical emergencies, uh, and one of them did not survive, which obviously left me with some family obligations and not necessarily in the right mental state for this episode, because this episode we're going to be dealing with a little bit of dark material. And you know, a little bit dark even by the standards of this show. It's about death and destruction and the depopulation of an entire geographic region. So I took a couple weeks off to clear my head. And here we are back and we'll be back again next week as usual. And all of the Patreon stuff is coming on time. So, no worries in that regard. Speaking of which, shout out to Lars, the show's latest patron. Thank you very much for your support, Lars. And last but not least, one final note before we get into the meat of this week's episode. I was on the Salad Tossers show again. Those are a couple of young guys who run a very not-work-safe uh, show sort of along the lines of Howard Stern. It's raunchy, and some of it may even get me in trouble, but if you're into that kind of material, which has nothing at all to do with this show, uh, the link is in the description. If you'd rather not hear that kind of thing, please stay here, but for those of you who enjoy it, I do hope you take a look. When I walk through the streets of my downtown area. In my local city, there is a public square, as there are in many cities. It's a wide open area where they have farmer's markets and street festivals, and in the wintertime they flood it and it becomes a skating rink. And in this town square... There are a bunch of flags on big flagpoles. There's an American flag, there is a flag of the state of New York, and the flag of my county, Onondaga County, and the flag of the city of Syracuse. And there's one more. It is a purple flag with a bunch of angular lines and boxes on it. And to those who know what that flag is, it represents something very significant and older than any of the other flags. That is the flag of the Iroquois Confederation. The Iroquois Confederation was a group of several tribes who spoke similar languages and lived in the Great Lakes region of what is now the U.S. and Canada, roughly speaking. 
the Onondaga Nation, after which my home county is named, well, they were one of those nations in the Iroquois Confederacy that ruled this huge stretch of land, and nowadays the Onondaga Nation is a small reservation of a few thousand people about 15 minutes south of the city of Syracuse. That is what is left of them. Besides all the folks who don't live on the reservation, but regardless, that is quite the fall for a civilization. What happened? Now, the traditional answer has been European colonists, right? European colonists came in and took all the land, and to a large extent that is true, but it wasn't just the colonists. It was a one-two punch. It was the colonists plus disease. And in my neck of the woods, in North America, disease came first. And in South America, the Spanish came first, and they brought disease, and the disease sort of came along behind them. But that disease, the smallpox and the plague and the measles and all the other diseases that were native to the old world but not the new world, well, those would spread ahead of European colonizers far up into North America. And by the time the first British and French colonists arrived in North America, they were not encountering intact Native American civilizations. They were encountering civilizations that had just gone through an extreme trauma. Estimates range from around 80 to 95 percent of all the people in North America had died in just the last couple generations. Right, these early North American colonists they were encountering the Mad Max remnants of what had been a great civilization. If those same colonists show up and you don't have disease, maybe they temporarily dominate the native people with superior technology. That happened when Europeans went to Africa and to parts of Asia, but in Africa and Asia that trend reversed itself. Right? There just weren't enough Europeans to subjugate those areas, and well, as soon as the local people had some technological parity, out go the Europeans. Well, that didn't really happen in the Americas because of that disease. Right? It was a one-two punch that annihilated so many of these civilizations. And the example of the Americas is a big example. It's an easy example, but it is not the only one. It's not actually the one that we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about how the Mongol invasions and the bubonic plague would depopulate much of Anatolia in the Middle East. And this would create a power vacuum, a 
population vacuum in many areas that would open the way for the rise of a new power to replace the old Arab Islamic powers, and that would be the Turkic-run Ottoman Empire. When we did the episode on the fall of Rome, we talked about how the Mediterranean world got shaken up like an Etch-a-Sketch. Well, that's what happens from the 1200s to the 1400s in the Middle East and really in the Islamic world at large. Now, a lot of people are aware of the Black Death, most people are, of how hugely impactful it was in Europe. But outside of a few Eastern European kingdoms, most of Europe never had to deal with the Mongols. Again, it wasn't just the Black Plague that dealt the death blow to the old Arab empires. It was the Mongols and the plague. It was a one-two punch. Let's talk about that. Let's start with the first punch, the expansion of the Mongol Empire. The Mongol Empire begins in far northeast Asia with the birth of a horse lord named Temujin. Temujin, who would later take the name of Genghis Khan, spends his younger years conquering a bunch of neighboring nomadic tribes and uniting the people of what we now call Mongolia. These are people who do not live in cities. They do not manufacture anything, but they know how to fight, and Genghis Khan is going to put them to work. And the first thing he does is he leads a conquest of the Western Xi dynasty. This controls much of what is modern-day China. Genghis takes over that area, and he also takes over much of the neighboring Jin dynasty, and that is a lot of the rest of modern-day China. All of a sudden, within the course of... Of one man's life, these Mongol people under Genghis Khan rule much of Eastern Asia, including some of the wealthiest areas in the world. And early on, it seems as if Genghis is going to sit back and enjoy his victory. He does not immediately go to war against more neighbors, as you might think that the stereotypical Mongol leader would. Instead, he sends a delegation to the Central Asian Khwarizmian Shah. Right, this Shah leads a large empire in the stands in uh, Southeast Asia, I'm sorry, Southwest Asia, right, those areas that are now former Soviet republics, well, most of that area was part of the Khwarizmian Empire, and it was an Islamic empire, and it was incredibly powerful at the time. And Genghis Khan sends 
an emissary to the Khwarizmian Shah asking for trade. He says, I am the Lord of the Rising Sun, symbolizing a new power in the East, and you are the Lord of the Setting Sun, symbolizing an established power in the West. Let's trade. Well, one of the Shah's local governors, the fellow who first sees this emissary, has the emissary put to death. Genghis is surprisingly patient. He sends another embassy, this time saying that he's still open to trade if the Shah simply sends his governor back to Genghis for punishment. Well, this embassy, too, is put to death, and now Genghis Khan is mad. He invades the Khwarizmian Empire, and he conquers from Samarkand to the Persian Gulf in the space of two years, from 1219 to 1221. Genghis's conquests are the stuff of legend, as is his cruelty. He himself says as much during the sack of Bukhara, a major city of the Khwarezmian Empire. At one point, he addresses the people of the city himself and says, quote, O people, know that you have committed great sins, and that the great ones among you have committed those sins. If you ask me what proof I have for these words, I say it is because I am the punishment of God. If you had not committed great sins, God would not have sent a punishment like me upon you. Unquote. The punishment of God. Well, now, that is quite the title for a person to take for themselves. That's just the kind of guy Genghis Khan is, and... When the Great Khan dies in the year 1227, his empire is inherited by his son, Ogadai. Ogadai returns his focus to East Asia, right where his father got his start. He conquers a little bit more of China and Manchuria, but the way to the Middle East has been opened and some of Ogadai's relatives are already eyeing the Islamic world again. Now, Mongol politics are complicated, and this isn't a history of the Mongol Empire. The point is to look at its effects on the Middle East and Anatolia, but you need to understand some things about these Mongols. Mongolia is a hard land, one of the toughest places in the world to try and form a civilization. Here is how a Western visitor, John of Plano Carpini, describes the Mongol homeland during his visit to the Great Khan in the year 1246. This was a little bit later during the zenith of the Mongol Empire. John of Plano Carpini says, quote, in some part thereof it is full of mountains, and in other places plains and smooth ground, but everywhere sandy and barren. Neither is the hundredth part thereof fruitful, 
for it cannot bear fruit unless it be moistened with river waters, which be very rare in that country. Whereupon they have neither villages nor cities among them, except one which is called Karakorum, and is said to be a proper town. We ourselves saw not this town, but were almost within half a day's journey thereof when we remained at Sira Orda, which is the great court of their emperor. And albeit the foresaid land is otherwise unfruitful, yet it is very commodious for the bringing up of cattle. In certain places thereof are some small store of trees growing, but otherwise it is altogether destitute of woods. Therefore the emperor and his noble men and all others warm themselves and dress their meat with fires made of the dung of oxen and horses. The air also in that country is very intemperate, for in the midst of summer there be great thunders and lightnings by which the many men are slain, and at the same time there falleth great abundance of snow. There be also such mighty tempests of cold winds that sometimes men are not able to sit on horseback, whereupon, being near unto the Orda, for by this name they call the habitations of their emperors and noblemen, in regard of the great wind we were constrained to lie groveling on the earth and could not see by reason of the dust. There is never any rain in winter, but only in summer, albeit in so little quantity that sometimes it scarcely sufficeth to allay the dust, or to moisten the roots of the grass. There is oftentimes great store of hail also, insomuch that when the emperor-elect was to be placed in his imperial throne, myself then being present, there fell such abundance of hail that, upon the sudden melting thereof, more than a hundred and sixty persons were drowned in the same place. There were many tents and other things also carried away. Likewise, in the summer season, there is on the sudden extreme heat and suddenly again intolerable cold. Unquote. Hard lands make hard people. The Mongols famously eat mice, hamsters, dogs, and other less traditional animals as food, and sometimes, allegedly, they even eat other Mongols. John of Plano Carpini tells us that they are so frugal in this hard land that pouring out a drink or spitting out food merits a death sentence. As a matter of fact, so does urinating inside your tent for some reason. But speaking of which, yes, indoors in a Mongolian sense would refer to the inside of a fur or felt tent. These people militarily put a lot of horse warriors in the field. Again, you're talking about a society and about the only thing it has going for it is the ability to raise a lot of horses and cattle. And the Mongol warriors will ride with multiple remounts, so they always have a fresh horse. Their armies are archer-heavy. These are mostly mounted archers, although they deploy a fair number of lancers too, and they are also quick to adopt new technology. Right? These people have now conquered from China all the way to the Persian Gulf. They have encompassed a lot of other civilizations with their own technologies and ways of doing things. Right? For example, 
the Mongols will employ a number of Chinese siege engineers. Another thing they get from the Chinese are gunpowder weapons. When the Mongols show up in the Middle East and Eastern Europe, it is the first time their opponents have seen gunpowder artillery. This is a fearsome opponent. And under Genghis's son, Ogadai, the Mongols will conquer all the rest of China and press into Russia and even probe their way into modern-day Poland. The story of Europe might have been very different if Ogadai didn't die in 1241. Now, this would force all of his generals to return to Mongolia for what is called the Kurultai. The Kurultai is a meeting of all of the Khans, the Mongol generals, to choose their next leader. Well, if you're a Mongol general, it is very important to be there for this event. And what this means is that any time the great Khan dies, his armies have to all retreat from wherever they are. And in this case, Ogadai's death is a welcome reprieve for the people of Western Europe. But it is unfortunate for the people of the Islamic world. See, the new Khan, Manki, he turns his eyes back towards Persia. We said that Genghis Khan conquered all the way to the Persian Gulf, but there are parts of the old Persian Empire that still remain independent. And Manki is going to go back and complete what his grandfather started. Well, he isn't going to go back himself. He's going to dispatch his brother Hulagu Khan to invade the Muslim world, starting with these remnants of Persia. And within Persia, many of his conquests are relatively easy. He's fighting against a sect called the Assassins, who are unpopular in the Muslim world as well, so many of the local rulers voluntarily join the Mongol cause. The Assassins have been hiding out in these mountain fortresses that are so far proving to be unassailable, but... Again, right, Hulagu is bringing with him Chinese siege engineers and gunpowder and the latest in military technology, and he has no problem forcing these assassins into submission and killing them all. And so he would complete the conquest of Persia, but Hulagu is under orders to conquer or obtain the submission of all the Islamic powers. And the next on that list is the Abbasid Caliphate. This is the Islamic heartland in modern-day Iraq. The Abbasids used to rule more or less the entire Muslim world before they angered a number of their subjects. But even so, even just ruling this Arab heartland, nonetheless, the caliph had a important significance in the Islamic world. 
He was nominally the leader of the entire faith. So other Islamic leaders, even ones who were in a military sense more powerful than him, well, they would still swear submission to the caliph or swear loyalty to the caliph. And so the caliph does not defend his heartland with walls. He relies on calling other Muslims for aid. In 1258, the caliph refuses Hulagu's demands for submission and puts out a call for help. But the Mongols already rule much of the Islamic world, As a matter of fact, their multinational army numbers well over 100,000, including Shiite Muslims and Christian Georgian auxiliary cavalry. They're bringing a lot of the caliph's natural enemies to this battle. And his religious authority does not save Baghdad. Estimates of the number of civilians massacred by the Mongols ranges from about a quarter million to over two million. In addition to the human toll, the great libraries and universities of the Islamic Golden Age are destroyed. Although reports that the rivers literally ran black with ink are probably apocryphal. The sack is described as follows by Ian Frazier in an August 2005 piece for The New Yorker. Frazier says, quote, On January 29, 1258, Hulagu's forces took up a position on the eastern outskirts of Baghdad and began a bombardment. Soon they had breached the outer wall. The caliph, who had been advised against escaping by his vizier, offered to negotiate. Hulagu, with the city practically in his hands, refused. The upshot was that the caliph and his retinue came out of the city. The remainder of his army followed. They laid down their arms, and the Mongols killed almost everybody. Hulagu told Baghdad's Christians to stay in a church, which he put off limits to his soldiers. Then, for a period of seven days, the Mongols sacked the city killing, depending on the source, 200,000 or 800,000 or more than a million. The Mongols' Georgian Christian allies were said to have particularly distinguished themselves in slaughter. Plunderers threw away their swords and filled their scabbards with gold. Silver and jewels and gold piled up in great heaps around Hulagu's tent. Fire consumed the caliph's palace, and the smoke from it beams of aloe and wood Sandalwood and ebony filled the air with fragrance for a distance of a hundred li. A li equaled five hundred bow lengths. A hundred li was maybe thirty miles. So many books from Baghdad's libraries were flung into the Tigris that a horse could walk across on them. The river ran black with scholar's ink and red with the blood of martyrs. The stories of what Hulugu did to the caliph vary. One says that Hulugu toyed with him a while dining with him and discussing theology and pretending to be his guest. A famous account describes how Hulagu imprisoned the caliph in a room full of treasure and brought him gold on a tray instead of food. The caliph protested that he could not eat gold, 
and Hulagu asked him why then he hadn't used his money to strengthen his army and defend against the Mongols. The caliph said, That was the will of God. Hulagu replied, What will happen to you is the will of God also, leaving him among the treasure to starve. Unquote. In fact, that apocryphal story is probably not accurate. But it is directionally correct. You see, the Mongols did not believe in shedding royal blood. So the sultan is wrapped in a carpet and trampled by Mongol horsemen running back and forth over him. While all of this is terrible, perhaps the most lasting damage done to the Islamic heartland by the Mongols was that they destroyed all of the canals feeding the irrigation system during their siege. When we talked about the Islamic caliphates in an early episode, we talked about several of the caliphs who distinguished themselves by investing in this infrastructure in their heartland. This was natural desert, but there were also rivers, and with good irrigation, they were able to make lots of arable land around Baghdad and other Middle Eastern cities. And this was able to then support large populations. Well, in the aftermath of this battle with no one left in Baghdad to repair the damage to the irrigation system, the smaller canals will silt up and they'll become blocked. And with those irrigation systems out of commission, Baghdad would not recover to its former population until, depending on who you ask, the 19th or 20th century. This creates a power vacuum in the Muslim world. The old Arabic cultural core is gone, and the area is depopulated. All of a sudden, there are a lot fewer Arabs in Iraq. Shortly thereafter, by the year 1260, Hulagu has taken the cities of Aleppo and Damascus from the Arabs as well, with the aid of nearby crusader forces. And with that, one last major independent Islamic kingdom remains. The Egyptian Sultanate. Now this Sultanate is ruled over at the time by some people called the Mamluks. These are Turkish warrior slaves, the predecessors of later Janissaries. Right? It's a similar idea. An enemy is defeated in battle. The Muslim side takes the young boys and raises them to fight for them. And that is who these first Mamluks were. And over the generations... They remained slave soldiers, but they became more and more respected, and eventually they would come to rule the Egyptian sultanate. And these Turkish warrior slaves 
were rulers not only of Egypt in the immediate area, but up into the Middle East a little bit. They rule over the city of Jerusalem at this time. Well, Hulagu attempts to get their submission. And even as he prepares to attack Jerusalem, he sends the following message to the Egyptian sultan Kutuz. He says, quote, To Kutuz the Mamluk, who fled to escape our swords, you should think of what happened to other countries and submit to us. You have heard how we have conquered a vast empire and have purified the earth of the disorders that tainted it. We have conquered vast areas, massacring all the people. You cannot escape from the terror of our armies. Where can you flee? What road will you use to escape us? Our horses are swift, our arrows sharp, our swords like thunderbolts, our hearts as hard as the mountains our soldiers as numerous as the sand. Fortresses will not detain us, nor armies stop us. Your prayers to God will not avail against us. We are not moved by tears nor touched by lamentations. Only those who beg our protection will be safe. Hasten your reply before the fire of war is kindled. Resist, and you will suffer the most terrible catastrophes. We will shatter your mosques and reveal the weakness of your God, and then we will kill your children and your old men together. At present, you are the only enemy against whom we have to march. This is the word of him who rules the earth. Tear down your walls and submit. If you do, peace will be granted you. If you do otherwise, that will happen which will happen. And what it is to be, we know not. The sky alone knows. Unquote. Well, that is another impressive threat from a Mongol leader. But before Hulagu can follow up, his brother Monkey Khan dies. And against the advice of his advisors and his Christian wife, he returns to Mongolia for the Kurultai, and he takes with him most of his army. So instead of having a massive host of over 100,000 men in the Middle East, he leaves behind a rearguard of 30,000 men under his general Kit Boga. His intention is to return after the Kurultai to finish his conquests. But Sultan Kutuz takes this opportunity to act. He realizes that this is the best chance he's going to get to beat back this Mongol army that's approaching Jerusalem. So he rallies as many troops as he can. Works out to be about 120,000 men. And to lead that army, he appoints a general named Baybars. Baybars has had some experience and some success against the Crusaders, and Kutuz thinks that he is the best man for the job. Baybars would lead his army out to meet the Mongols in battle, and they would encounter each other on September 3rd in the year 1260 at a valley spring called Ein Jalut. According to legend, this is the same valley 
where David fought Goliath in the Old Testament. Now, Baybars is a Kipchak Turk. He is not originally from Egypt, and once upon a time, when he was a young man, he had actually been captured by the Mongols, and he had spent enough time in their service to know a thing or two about their tactics. And here in the Battle of Ein Jalut, he is going to borrow them. See, one of the Mongols' favorite tactics is called the feigned retreat. They will use these large bodies of horse archers to assault their enemy and fire a bunch of arrows at them and kill a bunch of guys and demoralize the enemy, but at some point the enemy is going to come at them right, to make them stop. And at that point, the Mongols will often pretend to be running away. And what they're really doing is leading their enemy into a trap of some kind. Whether that be a flanking attack from somewhere else, whether there are just more Mongols over the next hill, fresh and ready to fight. And meanwhile, this opposing force, right, that is just charging at the Mongols, they're going to become disordered. And then when the unexpected counterattack comes, they're not going to be ready for it. Well, here at Einjalut, Baybars expects the Mongols to be a little bit more aggressive. They have smaller numbers, right? The Mamluks outnumber them about four to one, right? About 120,000 to 30,000. And the Mongols, nonetheless, are the better troops, so it would make sense for them to be very aggressive, and indeed they are. What Baybars does is he holds most of his army back in hiding in the hills on either side of the valley, and his main force goes out to engage the Mongols in the center. And after a little bit, the Mongols start to overwhelm them, and these troops start to pull back. And by all accounts, it's not even really a feigned retreat. It's kind of an actual retreat. But Baybars had predicted this and had positioned his men sort of behind and to the sides in the hills. So as his attacking force is retreating, he himself then is able to come down on the Mongols from the sides. And at that point, the Mongols are now entirely surrounded, and the entire force of 30,000 men under Kitboga is killed or captured. Hulagu will hear of this, and he will swear revenge, but he will never actually get to avenge his losses at Einjalut. Right. That battle will mark the furthest western advance of Mongol power. After the Kurultai, the Mongol Empire descends into a civil war, and Hulagu will go off on his own to attempt to restore his Middle Eastern kingdom from his power base in Persia. But in order to do that, he will first need to fight his cousin Berkey, which is the leader of the Islamic Golden Horde north of the Caucasus in 
southeastern Europe, far southeastern Europe. These Mongols in various places are starting to do what we would call going native. Berkey is a member of the third generation of Khans to rule that area in Eastern Europe, and he adopts the local Islamic religion. Well, if he's going to make war on the Egyptians, Hulagu is going to beat Berkey first. He's going to have to do that if he wants to not leave an unfriendly army in his rear. And he loses a battle to Berkey instead. And Hulagu retreats back to Persia, where he will remain, and where, ironically, his descendants will convert to Islam and become the Ilkhan dynasty. But hindsight is twenty twenty. Right In the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Ein Jalud, Baybars doesn't know this. He has every reason to suspect that Hulugu is going to be back soon, and he's going to be back with his full army, and the Egyptians had better be prepared. Baybars decides to take matters into his own hands. Uh, he will soon assassinate Sultan Qutuz and take power for himself, and... As sultan, he will order the evacuation of Syria. All Muslims are to evacuate the Levant so that the Mamluk armies can engage in a scorched-earth policy. They are going to turn that part of the Middle East into a wasteland so that the Mongols can't march all of their horses across that area. That is the downside of being a horse-heavy military power is you need lots and lots of grazing area for that cavalry. Well, at this point, Baybars is just going to take that land away from them. In the process, he largely depopulates the region. Again, the Middle East is losing population, particularly losing its Arab population, and it is losing relevance on the world stage. Kind of hard to be relevant when you're the area everybody has just retreated from. Now, Islam itself, as a world religion, would ultimately be rejuvenated not just by the Mamluks, but by a lot of these Khan successor states as they continue to adopt their local cultures, wherever that might be. But for now, there is a massive power vacuum where the old Arab powers used to be. We talked about, at the beginning, there being a one-two punch in the Middle East and in Anatolia. That's punch number one. Punch number two is the Black Death, the bubonic plague. This is an infection that is caused by a bacteria called Yersinia pestis. It can infect the lymph nodes, but it can also affect the lungs and other major organs, or even infect the blood, which is almost always fatal. Nowadays, you can treat the bubonic plague with antibiotics. Certainly not something you want to catch, but it's not exactly a death sentence like it was back then. 
The bubonic plague has caused several epidemics in world history. It is the most likely cause of the plague of Justinian way back in the 700s, so it's not as if this has never happened before, but it exists usually in nature in what are called reservoirs, generally rodent populations. There is a reservoir in the East Asian steppes where the Mongols come from. And at this time, there has been a lot of rain in that area, which has led to an overpopulation of mice and rats that carry this plague. And by the year 1345, which is a good... 85 years after the Battle of Ein Jalut, but still within living memory, well, the Mongols are experiencing this plague outbreak. They have a lot of sick people. And one of these Khan successor states is at war with Genoa, which is at the time a major player in the Mediterranean the Genoans don't have a lot of territory, but much like the Venetians, they have a lot of ships, and they control a lot of the trade. And the Genoans have a trading enclave at Caffa, which is a city in the Crimea on the Black Sea. And the Mongols are besieging that city, right? They're not all the way over in Italy. They're in Crimea attacking the Genoans there and going after their trade power, but this besieging Mongol army, like much of the rest of the Mongol world, is being affected by this plague, which, as you can imagine, makes it hard to fight. So, as one of their desperate measures, some of the Mongol besiegers load plague-infected corpses into catapults and fling them into the city. Until this point, this particular plague outbreak has been a land-based phenomenon, really limited to northeast and central Asia. You don't see an outbreak even down in China or down in India. It's mostly a thing of these Mongol lands. But when these corpses are flung into the city in the crowded and desperate and unsanitary conditions of a city under siege, the plague breaks out. And before the siege is ended, a fleet of Genoese trading ships manage to escape Caffa, and they sail for the port of Messina in Sicily. When they arrive, all of the crew members are either dead or infected. And worse, as many ships do, these ships have some stowaways. Not human beings, but rats. And these rats are also infected. And they carry fleas that are infected and which can spread the disease from rats to humans. And these rats and these corpses get into Messina, which is a major trading port in the heart of the Mediterranean. And over the next decade, this one singular disaster would lead to the deaths of tens of millions of people 
in Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. Pretty much anywhere that was involved with Mediterranean trade, the Black Plague would end up spreading. Here is a contemporary account by a Florentine writer named Giovanni Boccaccio. He was an eyewitness to the events of this time period, and he wrote a long description of what happened just in his little corner of northern Italy. Middle Eastern sources are harder to come by from this time period, but Boccaccio's account is fairly grim, and it's also fairly long, so I have slightly edited it. You are getting the Dan Toller abridged version, so to speak. But here's what he says. He says, quote, In men and women alike, there appeared at the beginning of the malady certain swellings, either on the groin or under the armpits, whereof some waxed of the bigness of a common apple, others like unto an egg, some more and some less, and these the vulgar named plague boils. From these two parts, the aforesaid death-bearing plague boils proceeded in brief space to appear and come indifferently in every part of the body, wherefrom, after a while, the fashion of the contagion began to change into black or livid blotches, which showed themselves first on the arms and about the thighs, and after spread to every other part of the person, in some large and sparse, and in others small and thick sown. And like as the plague boils had been first a very certain token of coming death, even so were these for everyone to whom they came. And this pestilence was the more virulent for that by communication with those who were sick thereof, it got hold upon the healthy, no otherwise than fire upon things dry or greasy, when as they are brought very near thereunto. Nay, the mischief was yet greater, for that not only did converse and consorting with the sick give to the healthy infection of cause of common death, but the mere touching of the clothes or of whatsoever other thing had been touched or used by the sick appeared in and of itself to communicate the malady to the toucher. A marvelous thing to hear is that which I have to tell and one which, had it not been seen of many men's eyes and of mine own, I had scarce dared credit, much less set down in writing, though I had heard it from one worthy of belief. I say then, that of such efficacy was the nature of the pestilence in question in communicating itself from one to another, that not only did it pass from man to man, but this which is much more, it many times visibly did. To wit, a thing which had pertained to a man sick or dead of the aforesaid sickness, being touched by an animal foreign to the human species, not only infected this latter with the plague, but in a very brief space of time killed it. Of this mine own eyes, as hath a little before been said, had one day, among others, experience on this wise, to wit, that the rags of a poor man, who had died of the plague, being cast out into the public way, two hogs came up to them, and having first, after their want, rooted among them with their snouts, took them in their mouths and tossed them about their jaws then. In a little while, after turning round and round, they both, as if they had taken a poison, fell down dead upon the rags with which they had in an hour intermeddled. 
From these things, and many others like unto them, or yet stranger, diverse fears and conceits were begotten in those who abode alive, which well nigh all tended to a very barbarous conclusion. Namely, to shun and flee from the sick and all that pertained to them, and thus doing, each thought to secure immunity for himself. Some there were who conceived that to live moderately and keep oneself from all excess was the best defense against such a danger. Wherefore, making up their company, they lived removed from every other, and shut themselves up in those houses where none had been sick and where living was best. And there, using very temperately the most delicate foods and the finest wines, and eschewing all incontinence, they abode with music and such other diversions as they might have, never suffering themselves to speak with any, nor choosing to hear any news from without of death or sick folk. Others, inclining to the contrary opinion, maintain that to carouse and make merry and go about singing and frolicking and satisfying the appetite in every possible way and laughing and scoffing at whatsoever befell was a very certain remedy for such an ill. That which they said they put in practice as best they might, going about day and night, now to this tavern, now to that, drinking without stint or measure. And on this wise they did yet more freely in other folks' houses, so but they scented their aunt that liked or tempted them, as they might lightly do, for that every one, as he were to live no longer, had abandoned all care of his possessions, as of himself. Wherefore the most part of the houses were become common good, and strangers used them when as they happened upon them, like as the very owner might have done. And with all this bestial preoccupation, they still shunned the sick to the best of their power. In this sore affliction and misery of our city, the reverend authority of the laws, both human and divine, was all in a manner dissolved and fallen into decay, for lack of the ministers and executors thereof, who, like other men, were all either dead or sick, or else left so destitute of followers that they were unable to exercise any office. Wherefore, everyone had license to do whatsoever pleased him. Many others held a middle course between the two aforesaid, not straightening themselves so exactly in the matter of diet as the first, neither allowing themselves in such license in drinking and other debauchery as the second, but using things in sufficiency, according to their appetites. Nor did they seclude themselves, but went about carrying in their hands some flowers, some odiferous herbs, and some other diverse kinds of spiceries, which they often set about to their noses, accounting it an excellent thing to fortify the brain with such odors." more by token that the air seemed all heavy and attainted with the stench of the dead bodies and that of the sick and the remedies used. Some were of a more barbarous, though peradventure a surer way of thinking, avouching that there was no remedy against the pestilence better than, no, any so good as to flee before them. Wherefore, many moved by this reasoning and wrecking of naught but themselves, both men and women abandoned their own city, their own houses and homes, their kinfolks and possessions, and sought the country seats of others, or, at the least, their own, as if the wrath of God, being moved to punish the iniquity of mankind, would not proceed to do so wheresoever they might be, but would content itself with afflicting those only who were found within the walls of their city, or as if they were persuaded that no person was to remain therein, and that its last hour was to come. And albeit these, who opined thus variously, died not all, yet neither did they all escape. Nay, 
Many of each way of thinking and in every place sickened of the plague and languished on all sides, well nigh abandoned, having themselves while they were still whole set the example to those who abode in health. Indeed, leaving be that townsmen avoided townsmen, and that well nigh no neighbor took thought other than that of kinsfolk, seldom or never visited one another, and held no converse together save from afar, this tribulation had stricken such terror to the hearts of all, men and women alike, that brother forsook brother, uncle, nephew, and sister, brother, and oftentimes wife, husband. Nay, what is yet more extraordinary and well-nigh incredible, fathers and mothers refused to visit or tend to their very children, as if they had not been theirs. By reason whereof, there remained unto those incalculable numbers who fell sick, none other succor than that which they owed either to the charity of friends, and of these there were few, or the greeds of servants who tended them, allured by high and extravagant wages. Albeit for all this, these latter were not grown many, and those men and women of mean understanding, and for the most part unused to such offices, who served for well-nigh naught but to reach things called for by the sick, or to note when they died. And in the doing of these services, many of them perished with their gain." Few again were they whose bodies were accompanied to the church by more than half a score or a dozen of their neighbors, and of these no worshipful and illustrious citizens, but a sort of bloodsuckers sprung from the dregs of the people, who styled themselves pickmen, and did such offices for hire, shouldered the beer and bore it with hurried steps, not to that church which the dead man had chosen before his death, but most times to the nearest, behind five or six priests, which latter, with the aid of said pickmen, thrust him into what grave soever they found first unoccupied, without troubling themselves with too long or too formal a service. The condition of the common people, and belike in great part of the middle class too, was yet more pitiable to behold, for that these for the most part retained by hope or poverty in their houses, and abiding in their own quarters, sickened by the thousand daily and being altogether untended and unsuckered, died well-nigh all without recourse. Many breathed their last in the open street, whilst other many, for all they died in their houses, made it known to the neighbors that they were dead rather by the stench of their rotting bodies than otherwise. And of these and others who died all about the whole city was full. For the most part, the neighbors, moved more by fear lest the corruption of the dead bodies should imperil themselves than by any charity they had for the departed, either with their own hands or with the aid of certain bearers, when as they might have any, they brought the bodies of those who had died forth out of their houses and laid them before their doors, where, especially in the morning, those who went about might see corpses without number. Then they fetched beers, and some, in default thereof, they laid upon some board or other. Nor was it only one beer that contained two or three corpses. Nor did this happen but once, nay, many might have been counted which contained husband and wife, two or three brothers, father and son, or the like. And an infinite number of times it befell that two priests going out with one cross for someone, three or four beers, borne by bearers, ranged themselves behind the ladder, and whereas the priests thought to have but one dead man to bury, they had five or six or eight, and sometimes more. Nor therefore were the dead honored with aught of tears or candles or funeral train, 
Nay, the thing was to come to such a pass that folk recked no more of men that died than nowadays they would of goats. The consecrated ground sufficing not to the burial of the vast multitude of corpses aforesaid, which daily and well-nigh hourly came carried in crowds to every church, especially if it were thought to give each his own place, according to ancient usance, there were made throughout the churchyards, after every other part was full, vast trenches, wherein those who came after were laid by the hundred, and being heaped upon therein by layers, as goods are stowed aboard ship. They were covered with a little earth, till such time as they reached the top of the trench. Unquote. This plague would sweep throughout the Mediterranean world in various waves hitting different areas at different times and sometimes more than once. And some of the places that got hit the hardest were the places where there was a lot of trade. The more people are coming and going from different places, the more opportunity there is for the plague to come to your doorstep. In the Middle East is a crossroads of cultures. It has traditionally relied on trade for much of its income. And so the people in that part of the world suffer even worse than those in Europe. The majority of people in Aleppo and Damascus die. Vast swaths of rural villages disappear altogether. Baghdad, which was already hit so hard by the Mongols, it's hit by not one but two waves of plague. So is Mosul, the other major city in Iraq. We've had war. We've had pestilence. These are two of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but they bring with them a third famine. When you have this many people killed and displaced in a society where food production is not always guaranteed to begin with, you run the risk of a lot of starvation. And cultural differences will change how Europe and the Middle East approach this issue. Right? The net result of the plague in both societies is less rural population, more urbanization, and more demand for labor. Right? European countries respond mostly with higher wages. This just sort of happens. Uh, in the Middle East, this is less feasible due to the centralized nature of the Mamluk administration and also due to heavy reliance on slave labor at the time. Furthermore, European social welfare has relied in the past largely on monastic communities, and these communities are the hardest hit of all during the plague. Not surprising, these are people who live communally, right? You would expect a contagious disease to hit them hardest, and it does. So with this major blow to the what we would call the social welfare system of the time in Europe, the people had to adapt, and you started to see the birth of civic organizations. On the other hand, uh, Islamic social welfare under the Mamluks 
relies on private charity and with the economy in shambles, there is little to be had, at least from individuals, in the, in the absence of any kind of civic organizations. And because so much of the labor is slave labor and not voluntary labor, you don't see the rise of those types of civic organizations. During this time, the Mamluk rulers spend most of their energy on maintaining Egypt, at their heartland, so anything they can do to help, they're going to tend to do there, whereas the folks out in the Middle East are going to kind of have to rely on their own efforts. And with little support from leadership, they suffer greatly. For every plague death, there is also an Arab who leaves for Egypt, or who moves to join a new power, the Ottoman Empire. Numbers are frustratingly hard to come by, but between disease and migration, as best I can figure out, the Middle East loses around 60% of its population during this time. Meanwhile, a little bit further north, another power, which I just mentioned, the Ottomans, well, they're starting to do very well. The Ottomans are a particular Turkic tribe that is still semi-nomadic. They are based in eastern Anatolia, but... During this time, in the 1300s, they spread their power across the Dardanelles and into Eastern Europe. They will essentially surround the tiny remnants of the Byzantine Empire in Constantinople. And it's not until the mid-1400s, after the plague that these Ottoman Turks really start to settle down. And because they're nomadic, they don't have cities, they don't have big grain stores, they don't have as many opportunities for plague to take root in their society. And so while these surrounding peoples, particularly the Byzantines, get hammered by the plague the Ottomans don't really suffer all that much. And they are able to take advantage of these weakened surrounding peoples, particularly trade-dependent urban powers like Constantinople, and they're able to sweep up a lot of land. By the year 1453, these Ottomans would even take Constantinople itself and expand from there to become an Islamic juggernaut. But that's another story, and it will be at least one entire episode very shortly. But in the meantime, let's just stop and consider how this depopulation of the Middle East, and to a lesser extent Anatolia, how did this affect history? Well, it would leave the Islamic world divided between the Mamluks with a power base in Egypt and the Ottomans with their power base in Constantinople. The Ottomans would go on to dominate much of the world until the early 20th century. 
By then, it would have become the cultural center of the Islamic world. And that was only possible because it surpassed the old Arab empires. That until the 12 and 1300s had dominated the Muslim world. The one-two punch of the Mongol invasions and the Black Plague depopulated that Arab homeland in the Middle East. And that vacuum made room for a new power. And that's why it's relevant. Hello again, it's Dan, and I'm here to let you know about a few things we are doing to grow the show here at Relevant History. First off, there is now a monthly video series called Dan's War College. In that series, I, myself, do a video presentation on a particular battle from history and break down the tactics and the strategy involved. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, that is available at the Relevant History Patreon page, and that video, along with access to a private Discord server and, of course, a shout-out on the show, well, that can all be had for the low, low price of $5 a month. But if that's not enough, I'm also doing a monthly audio series called Irrelevant History, where we discuss silly or quirky events from history. That show, along with a couple of other shows from other people, well, those are all available on the Salad Tossers Patreon channel, and that is only $1 a month. And just like the Relevant History Patreon channel, you can find the link for that in the description. And of course, if you'd like to hear more episodes, they're available on every major podcast service, most of the minor ones, and at dantollerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. Don't forget to share the show with your friends and leave reviews on your favorite service. Every little bit helps, and if you'd like to get in touch, you can find the show on Twitter at dantollerpodcast, that's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast, or on Facebook at dantoller, T-O-L-E-R. Finally, you can... Email me directly at dantollerpodcast at gmail.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you soon.